Good morning. How many of you have got your New Year's resolutions done? No? Seriously, it's so small. Like, I'm going to break it or something. He's not here. I can't make fun of Nick for being hype challenged. So, New Year's resolutions? Yes? A few nervous chuckles? No? So I asked Google about New Year's resolutions, and uh, Google gave me 219 million responses in 0.66 seconds. I know, I did this the last time I preached, but hang in there with me. That's more seconds than exist in an entire year, by a couple years, actually. According to one statistic, over 40% of Americans will make some kind of New Year's resolution this year. The most common are health-related, uh, diet-related. I got a little bit of an echo here. I'm going to exercise more. I'm going to eat better. Some of them are, I'm going to make better financial choices, or I'm going to be smarter with my relationships. And then we have some silly ones. <coughs> I resolve to never again take sleeping pills and laxatives in the same night. Or how about this? My New Year's resolution is to be more assertive, if that's okay with everyone. <laughs> or I resolve to exercise my right to eat more tacos. And this is my favorite one. My New Year's resolution is to be a nicer person. Stop laughing. I can do this. <laughs> I said stop laughing. Now, New Year's resolutions are meant to be a positive, healthy motivation for us to change something in our lives. But let's be honest, they hardly ever last past Valentine's Day, which is why year after year after year, we have to make new New Year's resolutions. But today, I'd like to encourage you to hold off on making those resolutions. I'd like to challenge you to pause and reflect. My challenge to you is to reflect on how God has been leading you, how God has been testing you, how God has been providing for you this past year, and, and maybe longer. The greatest New Year's resolution you can make is to make each, to, is to each day remember God more. God's word has a lot to say about remembering who he is, what he's done, and what he's asked of us. And today we're going to look at a passage that was written thousands of years ago, but is just as applicable today as it was first penned. If you would go ahead and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8, and uh, go ahead and stand here at Timberline. We like to stand when we read God's word because we believe it comes with his full authority and it has the power to change and correct us. So we are going to be reading Deuteronomy chapter 8, and we will be reading the whole chapter. Deuteronomy chapter 8. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God 
has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valley and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you out excuse me, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word is always applicable. Every single word. Thank you that it has the authority and the power to change our lives, to reveal your truth, to convict our hearts, and to draw us into becoming more in the image of your Son. So we thank you for your word, and we pray that your word will speak through us and in us today, and that you will be glorified in all that we do. In your son's name we pray, amen. Long chapter, I know. Let's put some context on this passage. God had already called and sent Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery to Egypt. The ten plagues had been displayed. Pharaoh had relented. He said, go, get out of my sight, only to change his mind as the Israelites were trapped against the Red Sea. But then God's might showed up again, and he parted the Red Sea, and the Israelites went through 
on dry land, and then the waters crashed down on the approaching army. Then the God's people were led to Mount Sinai, where they spent about a year camped on the mountain, on the side of the mountain, the foot of the mountain, receiving the law. After receiving the law, then they were led across the desert to the promised land, only to have 10 of the 12 spies say that this land is full of giants, filled with fortified cities. It is impossible for us to conquer it. Mind you, these are the same people who had witnessed the plagues, who had crossed through the Red Sea, who had seen God's presence descend down on Mount Sinai, had all these miracles of provisions along the way, they get to the promised land and say, nah, it's impossible. Really? They are spiritual infants. So after hearing the report from the pessimistic spies, the people despair, and they actually have the audacity to say, it would have been better if we had stayed slaves in Egypt. And thus ensues the approximately 40 years of wandering in the desert, the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. Until a new generation of Israelites had been born and raised and brought up, plus a few who had been there before who had witnessed these miracles, until finally they approach the promised land. Finally, God's people were going to take the land that had been promised to them all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they were going to enter this land flowing with springs and rivers and fountains with wheat and barley and olive trees and honey and pomegranates. And Moses says, wait! Really, Moses? We just spent 40 years waiting. What could we possibly wait for? He says, wait. And he tells them, before you enter this promised land, which is paradise, okay? They've been in wilderness, and they're going into paradise. And he says, wait, before you cross over into this paradise, I want you to stop, and I want you to remember. Now, there's more to the story of how Moses helps them remember, and it's really cool. Read the Old Testament, guys. It's really cool. We don't have time to talk about it today. Read the Old Testament. That's my plug. Now, I don't know what your particular situation is right now. I don't know how you've been experiencing the wilderness. I don't know if you're looking forward to the new year or maybe you're looking at it with some anxiety, maybe with some apprehension. Maybe you're excited for it and you're looking forward to it. I don't know. Maybe you're looking for some positive, healthy changes. Maybe you have some goals that you want to set forth and and strive towards. No matter where you're at today, the best, and I mean the best thing that you can do is to resolve to remember. The greatest New Year's resolution you can make is to each day remember God more. So I urge you today, we're going to talk about three main points. We're going to talk about remembering who God is. We're going to talk about how you need to remember what he's done. We're going to urge you to remember what he's commanded. These themes repeat themselves over and over and over again in Scripture. Now, it's important for us to read the Old Testament as a lot of allusions designed to point us to spiritual realities. For instance, if we keep God's commandments, for us, we're not going to acquire land somewhere. 
we're not going to acquire riches and vineyards somewhere. It'd be nice. The physical blessings experienced by the Israelites were but a shadow of the physical and spiritual blessings we inherit through Christ. The spiritual blessings we inherit now, the physical blessings we will inherit through eternity. So if you desire these spiritual blessings, if you desire to spend eternity in paradise with your creator God, then remember who our God is. Moses urges us in verse 2 to remember the whole way God has led us in the wilderness. If you've been with us during our series in Revelation, I know it's been going on for months now, and we still have a couple months left, which is cool. But if you have been with us in our study of Revelation, you'll recall that in Revelation chapter 12, there's a wilderness described. And the people of God are in that wilderness. The wilderness is the time between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. That is the wilderness. That wilderness is the spiritual reality that we do not belong in this world. We are ambassadors to this world. This world is at war with us. This, the spiritual world of Satan, who is in control right now of this world, is at war against God's people. That is our spiritual reality. But that war has already been won. That's the irony here. The war has already been won by Jesus' death and resurrection. So we are in this wilderness just kind of surviving at the moment. The wilderness is also where God is preparing us, the bride of Christ, purifying us, making us holy in preparation for us to be reunited with Christ as his bride, holy and pure, because that's what he deserves. He deserves a bride that is holy and devoted to him. So what is the purpose of the wilderness? Go back to verse 2. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing to know what was in your heart, whether you would he he, uh, keep his commandments or not. So who is our God? This verse says that our God is the leader. He's the one in charge. He's in command. He's the supreme ruler of the universe, him and him alone, and he is the one who's leading and never aimlessly. We don't believe in an impersonal God who created this whole universe thing and then step back and just to see what would happen. No, we believe in a living God who is in, in our midst, who is with the church today, just like we uh, read about in Revelation chapter 1, where Jesus is pictured as with the church. That's the God that we serve. We serve a God who is the leader who is leading us just like David wrote in Psalm 23. And this leading serves a purpose. What does that mean? It means that God is supreme and the only one worthy of being number one. That purpose is to humble us. We need humbling, even though we don't think that that's a good thing sometimes. It feels awkward and we're like, no, I want to be number one. No, the God of the universe is number one, and so we require humbling. For the Israelites, it meant a total submission and reliance on God's provision day after day after day. Guess what? It still means that today for us. Check out verses 3 and 4. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, know nor did your fathers know, 
that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. This infant nation went through a very dramatic education designed to make them completely and utterly reliant upon God, all the way down to the miraculous preservation of their clothing for 40 years. Why? Because when we forget to rely upon God, we set ourselves up to fall for a huge, huge lie. And that lie is the lie of self-sufficiency. The lie of independence, that we are number one, that we can take care of ourselves, that we don't need God. And it's easy to fall for this lie when everything around us is going smoothly. Like it says in verse 11, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. That's pride, by the way. Then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. Then in verse 17, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Our God is faithful, and he's so faithful that he will actually pursue humbling us for our benefit in order to crush this lie, this lie of self-sufficiency, because it's so destructive, and it destroys our relationship with God. It happened many times to the Israelites. As God says in Amos chapter 2, verse 13, Behold, this was to a rebellious Israelite's, mind you, his people. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. All these words of might and strength and swift and powerful are meaningless if the God of the universe is not the one sustaining you. Brothers and sisters, we fight this lie of self-sufficiency by remembering the times God has humbled us. Remembering the times God has been there to provide for us when all of our strength is gone, when all of our resources are gone, when we are at our limit and we have nothing else to offer. We remember these times by sharing these stories with others so that they can remind us when we start feeling that lie creep up as well. In the Old Testament, the way that they would remember is by setting up altars or monuments there's a really cool story in Joshua chapter 4 that's a great example of this. Joshua chapter 4, beginning in verse 20. Context, the Israelites are crossing into the promised land through the Jordan River. And they were told to collect stones from the middle of that dry river. Miracle. River stopped. They walked through dry. Verse 20. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan 
Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. We remember best when we tell of God's faithfulness. So share your stories with each other. Parents, tell your children, remind your children, every time we gather should be a time of stopping and remembering who God is. Even when our world is crashing around us, the psalmist in in Psalm 77 says, I cry aloud to God and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. How does the psalmist respond to this lament, this this humble cry to his God? He continues later in verse 11. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all of your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders, and you have made known your mighty deed among the peoples, and with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Our God is the leader. Our God is number one. Our God is supreme. Our God is also the God that will test our hearts. Why? Because our God is holy. And just like Nick preached last week, holy means to be completely devoted to God. And God deserves a people that are completely devoted to him. Keep in mind, these Israelites, these people, were God's chosen people. But time and time again, they fell short as they spent this time in the wilderness, even, even from the exodus to the spies, which was a year and a half, maybe two years, they repeatedly failed to trust God over and over and over again. The post-slavery nation of Israel was in its infancy, and they had a lot of growing up to do. For instance, in Exodus 32, while Moses is up on Mount Sinai experiencing the very presence of God and receiving the law, He's gone for so long that the Israelites down at the base are saying, "Eh, he ain't coming back. Hey, Aaron, let's melt some gold down, build us some idols. God's presence is right here on the mountain. They can see it, lightning, thunder, rumbling. But Moses, their leader, has been gone, so they're like, yeah, let's, let's substitute. Let's substitute with a golden calf. And we will worship this thing, this man-made thing, and we will declare that this man-made thing is the thing that's freed us from slavery. They actually have the audacity to say that. If anybody ever in the Bible had justifiable wrathfulness ready to be smote upon them, it was the Israelites at Mount Sinai. But check this out. We read just two chapters over in Exodus 34. In verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there. 
and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. There's an amazing Hebrew word in this verse that I'm going to butcher, butcher the pronunciation of it. It's hesed, but you have to like put some phlegm in the first part of it. I just, I just can't do it today. It's usually translated kindness or loving kindness, and we see this a few times in Scripture. But it's difficult to translate because this word has a cluster of ideas behind it. It, it means love, it means mercy, it means grace, it means kindness. It wraps up in itself all of the positive, amazing attributes of God. Hesed is one of the Lord's most treasured characteristics. It's a quality that moves him to bless even when we don't deserve it. Even when we deserve that wrath, even when we want to substitute the creator God with, with some kind of an idol. Instead of saying, what's in it for me, Hesed pours out grace and forgiveness and blessing and love. It's an amazing word. There's no English word that even comes close to expressing all of that in just one word. This is the God we serve. And it's important that all of our circumstances, all of our experiences, all of our thoughts are flavored with the understanding that our God is abounding with Hesed. But this post-slavery nation, set aside for God's purposes, like I said, what's still in its infancy. And just as a parent will discipline their child for their good, God would discipline his chosen people because God sees the whole story. He sees the whole circumstance and not just this circumstance. He sees the whole picture. Our God disciplines us as a father does his children in order to test what is in our hearts, to grow us up out of spiritual infancy into spiritual adulthood. As it says in verse 5, know that in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Now the wilderness might seem like punishment. It certainly wasn't a fun time. It may seem unfair. But verse 16 says that this all happens to do you good in the end. Why? Because our God is the supreme leader. Our God is the ultimate source of all provision. Our God is holy and is the one who purifies our hearts, making us ready for his eternal blessings. Our God is the one who abounds in hesed. The wilderness has a purpose, guys, and that purpose is to rip away the delusion of self-sufficiency. So before you start making your New Year's resolutions, before you start thinking about the future, I urge you, take some time to reflect on this past year, maybe the past couple of years, and ask yourself, who is the God that I serve? Remember who God is. Now it's hard to separate who God is from what God has done. What God does flows naturally from his character, from his chesed. And we could spend forever discussing all of the things that God has done. 
But let's look at our text. In the midst of the warning we read about in verses 11 through 17, we read that God is the one who, quote, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So what has God done? God has delivered us from slavery. God is our deliverer. God is our redeemer. Now remember that much of the Old Testament is pointing us to a spiritual reality. And that spiritual reality is is that we are slaves to sin and death. Paul reminds us of this reality in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, when he writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, meaning this this first generation Israelites, our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, the manna, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ, the Redeemer, all pointing to Jesus. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. These delivered Israelites desired to return back to slavery. Think of that. I'd rather be a slave than go through this hard time. As surely as I'm standing here speaking, if you take the time to reflect on who your God is and what he has done, you will see what he's done in your life. You will see how he's provided for you, how he's led you, how he is your redeemer, how you were in need of saving because of your sin. So ask yourselves, do I desire his redemption? Or would you rather still be a slave? Galatians 5.1 says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Why would you want to go back? Many of the first generation post-slavery Israelites did not stand firm. Will you? Our God, full of said, I got to work on that word. Our God sent his son to deliver us from bondage to sin and death. He sent his son to set us free from slavery. If you have been set free, then remind yourself regularly. Remind yourself of what God has done for you through Christ. And your life, your life will become living proof for what God has done. Peter said as much in 2 Peter. This is a long passage, so I, I encourage you to turn there. 2 Peter chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 3. This is a really cool passage. They're all really cool passages. But I like Peter. He's a good writer. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, meaning we have everything we need. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We have everything we need through Christ. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. 
set free from sin. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, hear this, guys, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. That sounds like somebody who's forgotten. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an, an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. What God has done can be seen in the fruit of our lives, in how we treat our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, how we are becoming conformed more and more into the image of Christ, and how we cling to this freedom that we have in Christ. We become God's workmanship, his evidence in the world. We become the living sacrifices that we read about in Romans chapter 12. We are that evidence. What has God done? Hopefully my life will have some evidence. This is what God has done. So before you make your resolutions, before you start thinking about the future, reflect about what God has done in you and for you. Not just for you, because that just sounds like a, like a vending machine God. What has he spat out for me today? What has he been doing in you? How are you being transformed? How are you displaying the might of God in how you've been changed? Stir each other up with this knowledge. And our last point, remember what God has commanded. We have remember who God is. Remember what God has done. Remember what he has commanded. Our passage ends with a rather stern warning meant to keep our thoughts fixated on God. Verse 18 says, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you, Today, that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Brothers and sisters, please heed this warning. Are you obeying 
the voice of the Lord your God? Are you following after his prompting, after his leading? Is he number one in your life? You probably don't have a small metal or wooden carving in your home that you pray to or offer sacrifices to. If you do, we need to talk. But you probably don't have that. But our comfortable Western lifestyle has many, many, many other idols that can creep up into our lives. Can creep up into our lives and mute the voice of God. These idols can include ambition, wealth, safety, comfort, busyness, anything and anyone. Please get that. Anything and anyone who becomes your excuse not to do something God Almighty has asked you to do is, by definition, an idol. So I implore you as we close out this year, reflect on what God has commanded of you, how God has been leading you, what he has been prompting you to do. Perhaps he's leading you to share the gospel with a neighbor or a friend or a coworker, but you don't because you're afraid it might ruin that relationship. That's an idol. Perhaps he's telling you to quit your toxic work environment, which will mean you will have to completely and utterly rely upon his provision. But you don't because you're afraid because you have bills to pay. We all have bills to pay. That's an idol. Perhaps he's calling you to serve in the church, but you're reluctant because you are busy or you think you don't have enough knowledge or experience. You just got in the way of yourself. You are your own idol. Maybe he's prompting you into full-time ministry or calling you to take this gospel across the world to people who have never heard it before. But you're afraid because you have family here that you need to take care of or you're worried about the safety of your children or you're just, there's just too many factors involved. Your life just became an idol. If you belong to God, if Jesus has set you free from bondage to sin and death, then the ultimate God of the universe has somewhere that he's leading you. He has something that he's trying to tell you. He has work for you to do while you are on this earth. In John chapter 20, Jesus appears to his disciples after his resurrection, and he says to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Our God, who is ruler, who is almighty, who is holy, who is in charge, is sending you somewhere, whether that's next door to a neighbor, across the cubicle to a coworker, or to the ends of the earth. I don't know what your story is, but I guarantee you, I promise you, our lives here on this earth are meant to be in motion in some capacity. Our God, who is ruler and holy, is sending you somewhere. He has a task for you, just like he directed us in Matthew 28. The closing of Matthew in verse 19, he commands us to go out and make disciples 
He commands us to teach them everything Jesus has taught us. So I ask you, if you belong to God, if you have been set free, are you obeying this command? Who are you discipling? There isn't an opt-out option here, guys. It's either he is Lord or you're making yourself Lord. There is no opt-out option. Do you love Jesus? Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you keep my commandments, that's how I know you love me. My disciples are the ones who love me and keep my commandments. And he's commanded you to go and make disciples here, there, everywhere, and anywhere. Now, I, I know I've asked a lot of questions this morning. That's kind of the point, though, right? We're, we're reflecting. We're reflecting on the past. We're reminding ourselves who God is. We're reminding ourselves of what God has done. And now comes the future part. We're reminding ourselves of what God has asked us to do. So before you start making these New Year's resolutions, before you sit down and be like, you know what, here's my list of goals. I want to exercise more. Yep, I, I definitely need to do that. I want to watch Netflix less. Uh, I'll try. I'll be a nicer person. People laughed at that. I don't know why. That's hurtful. But also, God has asked something of you to do his work, to be his presence here on earth. Remember what Remember who our God is. Remember what he's done. Remember what he has commanded. The greatest New Year's resolution you can make is to each day remember God more. That's what this is about, guys. This is why we do this every single week. We have communion as a reminder, a weekly reminder of the price it took to free us from that slavery. It took the Holy Son of God coming and becoming like us and dying in our place to set us free. Let's do this more. Maybe not with the bread, not maybe not with the juice, but let's do this more in our homes, at the, ding, at the diner, dining room table, in our table groups, when we hang out with our friends. Let's do this more. Remember, I'm going to invite the men to come.